You're listening to Impact Interviews. I'm Sierra Williams. Joel Suss, editor of our sister blog, LSE Politics and Policy, recently sat down with Mark Blythe, author of Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea, and professor of economics at Brown University, to discuss how to increase the reach of political science research. I asked Twitter, our Twitter followers, uh, to pose you some questions. Here's one from Matt Wood, a PhD researcher in governance at the University of Sheffield. Mm. He asks, how can political scientists make their work more accessible to policymakers and the public? First one, dress it up in math. And there's a funny thing is that there's a historian who made this point. I don't know who he is. He was a British historian, and I heard the story, and it makes so much sense. He said, why is it the historians who actually know stuff about planet Earth never got listened to? Whereas economists who live in an entire world of mathematical theorems that actually may or may not gel onto the world at certain points in time, we could talk about that. But they're really powerful. Now, is it because um, policymakers can read uh, papers that need a knowledge of linear algebra and calc too? No. Can their advisors read that? More likely not. So what happens? Well, basically you pick up an econ paper, and what it does, it says, here's a paper where I'm going to show that when you cut uh, public spending, it actually leads to growth. And you get an introduction, it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty logical, whatever, and then it dissolves into math. So then you skip 20 pages, you get to the end, and you say, I have shown conclusive evidence with a high R squared that this is what happens, blah, blah, blah. So it's just an easier, digestible thing. It's filled with math. It must be true. Now, you pick up a history paper, and it says, you know, so what's really the truth about the Germans and the inflation phobia? Well, on the one hand, and the other hand, there's these factors, and you could take this analysis, and you plow through 50 pages, and at the end of it, you're still none the wiser. So a lot of it basically has to do with simple presentation of the argument, and that's why economists get listened to. I'm really convinced of this, because it's certainly not because there's really robust evidence, because if you go through a lot of this stuff, particularly the cases of so-called expansionary asperity, it's simply not the case. Um, what else do you need to do? Simplify. Stop the disciplinary conversation for a minute. It's fine that you basically want to talk to your peers, but the problem with disciplines is they create silos. And if all you're doing is responding to the latest theoretical bell and whistle that Professor X has produced, you get this kind of like scholasticism slash 19th century German um, philosophy, where it's Professor X's commentary on Professor Z's thesis about Professor Y's book, and nobody cares. Right At the end of the day, I mean, particularly for political science, frankly, if it wasn't for the existence of graduate programs where we make graduate students read our stuff, half the journals in the field would be dead. And if it wasn't for, like, the cable TV model of journal purchasing that makes libraries purchase hundreds of journals at once, most of them wouldn't be around. So if we actually had to sing for our supper in terms of policy relevance, it would be a very, very different political science. I would like our model to change to be more like that, because things are far too important to be left, basically, to abstract mathematicians. Thanks. I just, I guess one last quick question related to this is, um, do you believe that your work, your publishing of this book, um, you know, the video that you produced, is this having an effect on uh, policy? Is having an impact? Uh, it's very hard to tell. But as uh, Paul Krugman, uh, named up, Paul Krugman, named up, said in the New York Review of Books article, I mean, how the case for austerity crumbled, this book is just one part of a whole series of, you know, academic and other studies that are coming out now that basically show that this doesn't add up. So you've got Basu's book on the, you know, the body economic, how austerity kills. This one comes out, Paul Krugman's own earlier work, Stiglitz's work, all the rest of it. There's a whole bunch of people who have been pushing back on this. So this is just one part of that. I mean, I'm one voice in the chorus, but it's, you know, I hope it's powerful as an intervention. I hope, most of all, I hope that it changes reasonable people's minds. 
Because there's something wonderfully intuitive about the story of, look, you've, you've got too much debt, stop spending. But you need to take the next step and say, yeah, but there's a paradox of thrift. There's a fallacy of composition. What happens if we all stop spending? Then you just shrink the economy and end up with more debt. Economies are not like households. Households do not get to issue their own script. Right? The Blythe family does not get to import people into the family and tax their children three generations down the line. There is no secondary market in Mark Blythe debt that I issue to myself. Right? So you've got to break through these utterly fallacious categories and change the tenor of the conversation. Because if it's really harmful, if this is really just self-harm, let's just stop doing it. There's no good can come of it. That was Professor Mark Blythe. You can hear more of Joel's interview with Mark on the British Politicast episode on austerity at lscpoliticsblog.com. And of course, for more on the visibility and diversity of social science research, visit lseimpact.com. I'm Sierra Williams. Thanks for listening.